Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. For generations, the Silk Road has been thought of as a highway connecting east to west of the important bits at either end. But what if both Chinese and Europeans have gotten that wrong? What if, instead of connecting the two important ends of Eurasia by emptying the empty central section, the whole point of the Silk Road, or roads, was really to connect the heart of Eurasia to its eh, relatively unimportant peripheries? And what if through the influences that came down that network of roads, the societies at the peripheries were transformed over centuries, if not millennia, but particularly from the 13th to the 16th century. My guest today is Pamela Crosley, the Charles and Elfrida Collis Professor of History at Dartmouth College, where she specializes in the Qing Empire and modern Chinese history. Her most recent book is Hammer and Anvil, Nomad Rulers at the Forge of the Modern World, published in 2019 and it is the focus of our conversation today. Pamela Crosley, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Very nice to talk with you. So this is a complex book, <laughs> and um, uh, I don't know how you explain thesis statements to your students, but it was quite a revelation to me when I realized that uh, I could explain it to them that they had to have a good question first, uh, which the thesis statement to which the thesis statement is an answer. I see. And I suspect there are a lot of questions behind this book asked over a long period of time. So I'm very curious about uh, the backstory of this book. Um, when did you start asking uh, questions well, that, that resulted you. in that's, this? Oh, I'm sorry. No, um, no, no, sorry. Um, that's an excellent question because this is really not like any of the other books I've written. It did start very early on. And... Um, Originally, it was going to be a book about the parts of Eurasia that had uh, been tangential to the Mongol conquests. So the ways in which they had been changed by the persisting threat, the pressures from, from Mongol conquest of the areas that were tangential to them. So uh, it would have been Japan and Lithuania and the Mamluks and so on. But um, that has now just been kind of squeezed down to being what I think is probably chapter, uh, uh, which of the book, the um, uh, chapter 11, I think. And um, the, uh, the rest of it all just gradually accrued. And you're right, I was asking myself questions and reading in different areas. And I became interested at some point in global history. I wrote a little book, What is Global History? And um, uh, more questions in there. So um, I eventually came to realize that my main concerns really were this idea of somehow or other early modern Europe just independently arriving at these values of uh, independent skeptical inquiry, um, dissidents, uh, um, sort of secular orientations as contrasted to religious, and the ways in which those were really cumulative across Eurasia over time. And the reason I think we consider them European is the Europeans actually did undergo this kind of disjuncture at what I would call the early modern period, where they suddenly saw themselves uh, somehow rather in contrast to the rest of Eurasia, rather than integral to it, which is really, I think, the way that even Machiavelli was seeing it. So um, I, they, they, it came around to that. I'm really, I am very interested in intellectual history. It's a lot of what I've been teaching. And this this notion that Europeans somehow just you know, invented one day these ideas of, of skeptical scientific inquiry and and uh, opposition to state authority as a kind of political value. It, it just didn't appear that way to me. So I wanted to put it together. And well, there you are. So it seems to me that it runs against a couple of streams. Um, 
you've the one is the idea that the Europe, the West, whatever, did all this stuff in, in isolation. Is also, I think, um, something that you can see from, like, say, Joseph Needham and so on. Uh-huh. Look at all the amazing things. And this is very much a part of being a, a child in the 70s and, and as China was opening up. Was, look, look at all these amazing things, how far China was ahead of us, and we never knew this. Right. Um, but in, in, in you're suggesting also that medieval Europe was very conscious of the rest of Eurasia and very conscious uh, that the intellectuals, certainly in the medieval Europe, were very conscious of the, the wider world and how it was influencing them. I, I really do think that's true, and I, I'm a little bit at a loss to explain how we come up with this this heuristic idea. It's a stream in our teaching that somehow or other there are these continuities in European history, you know, that come forward in time without somehow or other really um, um, diffusing across Eurasia and, of course, the other way around, and. Um, you know, the way that historians tell history is history also. And so uh, really, I should have done another book, a companion book on why it would be that we would even have had this narrative from the, you know, from the beginning of of this uh, independently operating self-conscious Europe, you know, the West that was somehow doing all these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, I, I think, very important now to... Um, Chinese sensibilities often to see a China that's independently operating, doing things separately from the West. That's really true. There's a kind of mirror uh, narrative in China that that somehow China is also this independent thing. But um, y- you know, you I really appreciated you using that term peripheries before. I mean, this the fact that these areas, these rapidly more rapidly changing areas, are at the peripheries is really very striking. I think when you take the continental perspective. Yeah, I, I remember, I can remember the thrill of actually thinking about that for the first time, not that I ever did anything about it, but um, in some, maybe it was a class on late antiquity and uh-huh. realizing that, you know, all these, these the barbarian hordes <laughs> uh, that were coming over the horizon every hundred years, they came from somewhere. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that this was, that they, and and then realizing that, Similar types of people were like bothering people in China on the coast as well. And to realize that somehow really that China and Europe were acting in sort of a system and the, maybe the, the, the barbarians were the important bit because they were the ones that are holding the whole thing together. And that's kind of what your book is, is saying. Yeah. And again, you know, that goes back to having created this narrative both in Europe and in China of this this kind of hiatus in the middle of Eurasia where, you know, there's just us over here on the ends and we do all the important things and every once in a while it gets transmitted across the middle. But other than that, it's just that's just the place where things uh, get get carried across this kind of, you know, Silk Roads idea. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was and, I mean, then, you, you, met, you, you mentioned late antiquity. Yeah. Actually, one of the striking things to me when I you know began researching the book was really the Bronze Age. Because um, it's a classic example of something that sort of has an early history in the center, you know, in this old Gandhara, and then then proliferates out so that the Bronze Age in in China and also in Europe begin about the same time, but later than you can find in the the earlier areas. It's just, to me, that's just a classic model of how Eurasia actually works. Well, let's get to that. First of all, what we're, you and I have been using the term Eurasia, um, and uh, what what is that? What is, what is Eurasia? <laughs> well, um, as you know, in the book, I kind of declined to give it any kind of a. I know. I'm going to press you now. I'm trying to corner you on that. Okay. Well. Um, a territorial delineation didn't work. It, it never has, right? Going back uh-huh. to the 19th century when the kinder was trying to figure this out, is Africa out, is Africa in, you know, what, what is it? Uh, uh, it, it really, uh, to me, trying to actually draw lines on a map and say, here's Eurasia, um, really didn't work. There's There are trade networks that are, um, that uh cover Eurasia, but then connect it to other areas that you might not otherwise think of Eurasia as such as um, 
uh, northern Africa and maybe even this this sort of northwestern tip of Australia. Maybe you might want to throw in. Um, there are uh, cult areas of cultural transmission. Um, these expanding religions. Each of them has a slightly different sort of uh, edge to it, right? So that it seemed to me that there's no point in trying to put these edges in there. These are these um, reticulated networks of of you know exchange and specialization and transmission. Uh, that have a definite center in Eurasia because of the weight of the population there um, over the whole historical period. So I believe there is a Eurasia, but I think trying to actually point to uh, here's where it starts and here's where it ends, I, I think this may be kind of hopeless. So you referred to it instead. I'm not sure this is necessarily easy to grasp, but a boundless multidimensional vectors of increasing speed over time. Yes. Uh, what in the world? And then you describe it as a theater, which is a mixed metaphor, but it works somehow when you're reading it um, until I read my notes again. Uh, so what do you mean by a boundless multidimensional vectors of increasing speed over time? Oh, see, you're kind of reliving the experience I had when I was trying to edit the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I was asking, now, what, did that, what did that mean? Um uh, yeah, I, I think um, the uh, the reticulated vectors. Okay, that's you know that's trade, that's cultural transmission, that's movement of populations, right? Um, and all the things that get embodied when populations are moving. Um, um, but then the increasing speed. Yes, um, I was interested in in the um, the transformative effect of of the horse, um, in particular, in speeding up. Uh, the the rate of transmission, which I think also speeds up probably the rate of specialization and retransmission that's going to come afterwards. And then after that, you have the addition of uh, mechanized transport and so on. And eventually there are, you know, there's a kind of sea companion, right, to, to Eurasia, particularly the Indian Ocean. Um, and so that gets added to, and of course, open sea travel has another sort of speed vector to it. And um, I, I think really it's this cumulative effect of um, increasingly rapid transformation that creates this impression of what people call modernity, right? There's just this point where suddenly, whoa, everything is suddenly changing very, very fast. And um, I, I'm not sure that if you broke it all down, the actual patterns of specialization and transmission would look so different, but the time frame would look very, very different. But, but I think very important in this is idea, as you say, that cent that Eurasia is not a donut. That Central Asia, as I already, <laughs> we already said, is not a the blank bit in the middle. In some ways, uh -huh. it's 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 um it's like the middle of the road. I mean, the way that uh, tarmac or whatever whatever we're going to call it the, is is mounted up in the middle. Mm -hmm. You can still go across it, but things the water does flow down to either side, yep. either towards towards the Atlantic coast or towards the Pacific coast. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about. Let's go. Uh, you talk about. Let's go. Just talk about. Let's go right to bronze. Let's start with. You know, a I want to go through a number of different words that are or things that you then play around with, and those would be bronze, horses, iron, fire, and sky. So. <laughs> 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 uh, let's start with bronze. You already referred to it. What's the importance? How can we know that the Bronze Age began actually in Central Asia? Um, well, I am not an archaeologist, right? I get this no, all from not. just reading what they do. And um, yeah, this, this area, you know, you think of the Harappan uh, civilization, the Hindu Kush, this area of sort of roughly modern... Uh, uh, modern-day Afghanistan and, and northern India. There's, this is an area of very, very early development, including um, metallurgy. Um, now, there, when I, the way I'm reading it, there's a lot of disagreement about exactly how metallurgy develops at various places over Eurasia over time. But from my perspective, you know, because I'm, I'm taking this bird's eye view of the whole thing, um, what's really sort of striking is that, um, number one, bronze is distinctive. It's, you know, it, 
back to your question, how do you define Eurasia? Actually, bronze is almost a way to do that. Um, yes. But um, other than that, also the the general chronology, which is clearly from this ancient sort of in his in early historical times, Gandhara, but you know, before that, there's still this kind of center there where um, there's a lot of knowledge of metallurgy and a lot of the earliest sort of um, philosophical, ideological uh, sort of uh, phenomena are emerging. Um, and it's much earlier than at the edges, just, just sort of the same pattern as the spread of the Bronze Age. And so... Um... They then the theory would be that uh, bronze, the mixing copper with tin, which is you yeah. know something that very sophisticated uh, peoples in the Americas never quite achieved, yeah. that, that begins amongst these nomadic peoples, and then spreads to the to to the river civilizations, and then to the. Well, to the I don't know. I don't know if any evidence starts with nomads, and in fact. Um, I might not have been careful about this enough in the book. I, I'm not mm-hmm. trying to say that nomads are originating any of these things, okay. but that they are an essential part of this process of transmission and specialization and retransmission that is really, I think, what's driving this engine of development in, in Eurasia. So um, I, I think um, metallurgy and metallurgical uh, communities clearly predate agriculture by quite of ways. And so the role of nomads in moving between them, you know, it must have been very important. Um, how, to what extent people we would think of as nomads in terms of their cultural affiliations were actually living at these uh, metallurgical installations and working them. I'm not very clear about that. And I didn't, I didn't feel that the people I was reading on this were very, very clear about that. But there, there, before agriculture, there is a whole sort of, um, um, there's a kind of a landscape of uh, fixed points, which are basically mining and, and metallurgy and uh, probably various kinds of industries associated with um, uh, animal husbandry right. uh, before there, there are the agricultural um Entities. So that part of, of what we would now call Central Asia really seems to have been um, um, native to all that. Mm-hmm. The next uh, sort of the next object item noun is the horse. And right, I see, yeah. I, which is, you spend a lot of time talking about horses. And I see that they're essential to thinking about the, certainly the nomads as vehicles of transmission. Um, mm. you know, as I was playing this book over my head, I realized, oh yeah, that this is one of the, oh, maybe perhaps overlooked, um, well, no, actually Crosby talks about this in the Columbian exchange mm-hmm. and also ecological imperialism that really the, one of the big, uh, things that changed the Western hemisphere or led it to be, uh, go in a different direction was the loss of the, of the horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was there, you could eat it. Um, but it was never domesticated and didn't, it didn't survive to be domesticated. And that's a big difference. Um, well, I think, I think it is a very big difference. I mean, the, um, the ancestors of the horse were native to North America and the grasslands and so on. And, um, it's, it's really not clear that the last of those animals that, you know, were eventually either done in by environmental factors or by hunters, you know, looking for the megafauna. They, they were not quite like the animal we think of as the horse. Um, and it's partly because um, we don't have survivors of wild horses. We have feral horses who live in a wild way and that we call wild. Um, and we have, of course, the Pravalsky's horse that is really a kind of a reconstruction, you know, some of it very deliberate. So the horse, as we understand it, is is actually um, a creature of Eurasia. It, it's it's where through breeding and you know selection and so on that that it, it became the animal that we we think of as a horse. Um, and yeah, that makes a bit. It's, I think it's. There's a reason why, uh, over the past 2,500 years, uh, the great um, centralized, militarized empires um, have been in Eurasia 
and in areas where they could make adequate use of horse. And I think I say in the book that, you know, there is a reason why written history and use of horse in warfare are roughly coincident. Um, these are the same empires that are originating the, the written record that, that we still rely on today. Can you, uh, so if, one of the interesting things about is is the sacrifice of horses. Why do why do civilizations that are so dependent upon the horse that use it for everything? Um, why do they? Is that why they sacrifice horses? I mean, uh, I'm just, <laughs> well, I, I have a note about this. I'm just wondering why. Yeah. Well, you know the sac the sacrificial thing. This is to me. This is a big deal because I, I. I try to understand in my mind, right? Why do mm -hmm. people sacrifice people and and yeah. horses and you know uh, living things? Why why do anything like that? So intellectually, you know, one is trying to grasp it. Yet as a modern person, you're just feeling like, yeah, how could this have been a natural part of life? But yeah, first of all, people did sacrifice things that were very valuable to them. Is this is this big? Um, feature of, of ancient so-called Celtic civilization, right? That they, they were always sacrificing the things they thought were the most valuable. Um, they thought that's the way to get yourself right with the forces of the, of the cosmos. Um, um, I, but I think in addition to that, uh, you know, I think in very ancient Indian religion, you can see some of that kind of, that value come through. But I think in addition to that, people really thought horses had very special qualities that, um, including spiritual qualities, that were maybe best realized um, as the horse itself crossed over to the to the other realm. So this association of horses with you know their psychopomps, they they can lead you off into the into the world of the hereafter, and uh, you know ideas that horses can fly. You know, uh, I think there's something about the horse itself as is perceived and experienced by humans of this this flight, this rapid rapid movement, this this sort of um, uh, a sensibility and intelligence that, that doesn't work the same way that ours does and so on. And, and horses and horses in warfare, mm. uh, as you say, are not a technology, but they're a social institution. Mm -hmm. uh, and throughout Eurasia, they create elites or mm -hmm. elites are created because, well, explain why. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's well, your job. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, a, a lot of this is, you know, the stuff that we learn early on that, that um, horses are expensive. Uh, yep. You need to have land to raise them, um, particularly once you get into graining horses, right? Feeding the horses grain instead of letting them eat grass. Um, it, it all becomes very, very elaborate. You have to have a staff to look after them. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's number one, it, it's, it's a manifestation of wealth, but the, why are people doing it? They're doing it, uh, at least through the ancient and medieval times, they're doing it as uh, another manifestation of the importance of that individual to the enterprise of warfare and uh, standing in their overall society as a successful warrior. So um, I think that's got uh, a lot to do with it. In, in addition, I would say, because this is another part of my research, but I probably tried to work it into the book somewhere, that um, horses' relation to society is not the same even all over Eurasia, um, particularly after the 5th, 6th centuries. Um, in Central Asia, Europe, North Africa, riding a horse remains a kind of rarefied skill. Not everybody can do it. Um, uh, members of the elite go to school a long time to learn how to do it. Their horses are trained in a very elaborate way. But there's another way of using the horse, and I think the Mongols were a very good example of this, where um, uh, this is not uh, emblematic of elite status. Everybody rides a horse, uh, use a great big saddle so that you don't need a whole lot of skill to be able to do it. So uh, there, there are variations in this, but the whole idea that uh, commanding um, uh, some kind of a population of horses um, as a resource for warfare and then needing the land for that, the, the sort of the, the grants, right, from some kind of a ruler, those things really are in generalized form all across Eurasia in the, in the ancient and medieval periods. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, just when you were talking about the Mongols using larger saddles, 
uh, I hadn't thought about the distinction between cowboy saddles and English saddles going back so far. Yes, right. And that, that, that explains the sort of the the, plebe- the attitude of plebeians ride the cowboy saddles. You know, that's just for st- silly people yeah, who do trail riding. You know, but there's there, yeah. th- there's a there's an older there's an older thing to that um, than I had realized. Um, and once you add armor to that, and once you add the necessity of uh, learning techniques to use armor and the spear and all the rest well, then right. you, you have to have some sort of elite warrior class who's going to have to be supported as it spends all that time training. Um, that costs right. money. Right, right. And, and I, I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, in very ancient times, you know, in India and, and uh, um, uh, well, the, many of the, of the, the ancient societies that these elite warriors, I mean, there were there were whole classes that were dedicated to nothing but riding horses, because before saddles, this is a this is a very, very demanding right sort of activity. And then, as you say, you combine it with warfare and so on. And we're talking about people who have very, very rarefied skills. So they get marked as elite and necessary and favored, right, by the by whatever ruling powers there are from a very, very early period. I mean, you can hardly distinguish that kind of phenomenon from the emergence of some of the earliest uh, hierarchical societies and uh, sort of, you know, expanding uh, uh, kingdoms. And the and then when and furthermore, this gets into questions of horse breeding and sending horses around and about to breed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, this is. You know, for someone who like me who thinks about Godolphin's Arabian uh, and right. how that changes, like the stock, and and yeah. how that quickly changes the stock in England and then sort of Virginia, but mm-hmm. no, 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 it goes thousands of years before that. People yeah. are engaged in precisely the same activity. Yes, and yes. that is part of this this bubbling uh, ferment. This is the way that Central Asia is is exporting. Just as it exports breeding stock, it's exporting ideas, either from itself or from Mm -hmm. elsewhere, Mm -hmm. going across it. Yeah. Let's talk about fire. Um, As you say, as you point out that um, there there are universal human traditions about the water flooding the world uh, and and creating the conditions for human rebirth. You see that everywhere. You see that amongst Native Americans. You see that amongst, I think, Aboriginals in Australia. Yet fire, there's something Eurasian to that idea, fire and destruction. Um, Cosmic conflagration is part of human liberation. Could you uh, tease that out a little bit for me? Well, um, I, you know, when you read um, folklorists and scholars of religion, um, they're always distinguishing between these kind of um, chthonic, right, uh, ideas of, of, of deities, um, and then these others, so that there's, at some point, there's an idea that spiritual um, entities, um, including gods, are somehow living in the water, uh, in caves, right, in these kind of uh, shadowed places, but it was very striking to me that they they are, they're, they're below, you know, it's not the sky, and what eventually kind of made an impression on me was that there's not just these different kinds. I mean, we still have today residual elements of these of these chthonic ideas, but really there is a chronology to this. There is a kind of history to this. There's a point at which ideas about sky gods and the sky as a home for the soul, um, it, 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 it doesn't, it's not, it's not the predominant idea from the beginning. It becomes predominant in a fairly um, distinct period. So roughly 2,000 to, to 2,500 years ago, you, you start to see this, this idea of the sky and people calling heaven, right? Um, not just that which is up there above us, but that there's somehow or other, it's a home, it's a spiritual home of that. It, it's not, it takes people a while to really be able to, to agree that this is, the, this is where we're going to um, see the spirits or at least the lasting spirits, right? The good spirits, they're all, they're all going to be up there in the sky. And um, the evidence for this is kind of, 
you know, the linguistic evidence, which is, you know, that's always tenuous, but it is suggestive, is that um, this is somehow, this is something that at an early point may have had something to do with Mesopotamia because of trade, may have then uh, connected with Central Asia at uh, this early point, say, first millennium BCE, and then from there may have gone on to China to establish a lot of the vocabulary that the Chinese use about uh, spiritual entities and the sky, and uh, then eventually become, you know, there's always this, because it's reticulated, as I say, that there's always a kind of rebound effect. And um, I was really, really struck. I mean, I don't I don't know what religious scholars are going to say about this, but I was struck about the disparity here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that um, in the New Testament, it's all about heaven. Um, and it's really, that isn't exactly what you see in the Old Testament. There's a lot about God, but he's not always up in the sky, right? Mm, yeah. So, th- th- yeah, I mean, I'm a little, was, I'm a, I, there's, it's, it, you know, of necessity, you have to make generalizations to write a book like this. Yeah, and, right. and I want and I want people to keep writing books like this. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I uh, you know, there are two like actions in history. One is making uh, coherent and arguable generalizations. The okay. other one's picking them apart and uh-huh. uh, and sticking to context. We are yeah. certainly in an age in which the second activity is what you're trained to do in grad school, and you're and certainly you're probably almost positively prohibited from doing the first. Um, so. Uh, this but, comes and goes. Okay. You know what I mean? It, yeah. I mean, am I, I mean, this comes and goes there, there, and, but we're in the second phase right now. So I don't want, so I, I, I do have reservations about some generalizations. Um, okay. but I want, I, uh, at the same time, I don't want to say stop doing it because I really, I, I don't want you to stop doing it. Right. I, I love the book. And, well, here, uh, I mean, here's what was striking to me about this particular observation, right? Yeah. That it's not just—it's not just. I mean, the new, the old New Testament thing was just. I mean, to me, that was, that was like a, an also, right? The oh, and also, I know that. But it was really this idea that in the um, second half of the first millennium BCE, there is this very discernible. A movement of ideas, um, in, including religious ideologies. Uh, from Central Asia into um, basically the Levant, right, including mm-hmm. Palestine. And lots and lots of people n- noticed the effects of this on the emergence of early Christian ideology. So mm-hmm. it would have been something that would have come along, right, with all this. Yeah. Stuff. Now, let, let me, I actually think that in some ways that Marcion is the great, is the ch- figure mm-hmm. in the church who divides mm-hmm. the old and the new, and then in, in some ways says that the old is bad and Jews are bad. Um, and he has, um, and his, he's a very early figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some way in which that division gets into this Eurasian dualism. Mm-hmm. Um, that even the dividing of the Old and New Testament, as as people do, mm. I think is as much <laughs> is mm. even more uh, dual is is as Eurasian as anything else. Now, interestingly, um, and this has been a big uh, fighting point in the Christian Church amongst and, and amongst the church, it was a fighting point amongst the Church Fathers, and, was, and, and uh, yet it still persists in many ways. Mm. This division mm-hmm. between the Old and New, I think it's. I mm-hmm. don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm out on a limb here. I don't think that you see them actually in either Jesus or Paul mm-hmm. um, and uh, quite often the, the the opposite, but somehow that dividing, that that splitting into the two, the, the good, the angry God and the mm-hmm. sweet God, the sweet, this is something that, 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 that dualizing effect is, a, is, is very common to what you're also describing. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about after the time of Paul and but I I do spend a little time I think talking about sort of the 4th and 5th centuries and the the um yep. process by which a Christian canon is is developed and the struggle at the time um that I think was a very conscious one with these uh, dualist ideas, so-called Gnostic ideas, the things that were seen as sort of these so-called Asiatic influences. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, I think it was a, an, an overt struggle uh, to, to, to try to rescue a canon that would, would not be um, uh, would, would not be very vividly reflective of the influences of dualism and Gnosticism on yeah. their early beliefs. 
Yeah. Um, let's uh, move on. Let's talk about Turks. Um, <laughs> you, uh, it's very interesting. You said that originally you were thinking of focusing on the Mongols and that is not, I, I had that sense when I got to that chapter, Oh, this is where things were supposed to be. So I'm glad that you confirmed that's my suspicion. <laughs> you then you do draw things much earlier and we're going to have a lot of talk about Turks and Turkics peoples. Hmm. Um, and this is, you know, if, if people think about this, they're going to immediately think of modern Turkey, or if they're very well educated, we might think of the Ottomans. Right. And if they're very overly educated, I'll think of the Seljuks. But you're actually <laughs> drawing the, um, the, the, the time horizon far forward. And then as it were, and then at the same time, the geographical space wider. So who oh. are, who are the Turkic peoples? Uh, well, um, partly as the author, I get to kind of decide who will be a Turk in the book, right? So, um, and uh, there I did become very reliant upon um, uh, sort of longstanding uh, practices in Islamic uh, historiography of referring to Turks not necessarily on the basis of some idea of genetic or linguistic um, affiliation, but more on the basis of their role in history in relation to perceived centers of civilization, you know, particularly Iran and, and uh, um, Iraq. So uh, uh, there's, there's, I'm suggesting there is a kind of Turkic role um, and that some of the peoples we include or don't include could be very ambiguous in terms of their linguistic affiliations like the Xiongnu, or they could actually be demonstrably not Turkic in language like the Tapgak, but still represent the same sort of trend of the transmission of uh, Central Asian political ideas to these emerging empires at, at each end, in the Middle East and in China um, and in Eastern Europe, which is, uh, I think, a big part of the story too. So Turks are, I was very interested in the Turks as Turks, um, and their story is very interesting, right? They emerge basically in what's now Mongolia, and then for various reasons move into Central Asia, and eventually, at, at long last, arrive at Turkey. Um, uh, so that is interesting in itself, but the role of the Turks was also something I thought could be expanded rather in the way it, it does happen in Islamic historiography. Um, and so there's some people included in there who, you know, may not have been speaking an actual Turkic language, but are still part of what I'm going to consider to be uh, the, the this, this, this greater sort of story of uh, Turkic political ideas, political practices, um, military organizations, and the way in which they're affecting these uh, peripheral, let's put it that way, right, peripheral um, empires. So who are some of these Turkish peoples? You, you refer to the Zhongnu, the, um, the Tagbak, the, yeah. the Heftalites. Uh, this is a, yeah. a, are the Avars and the Huns are they all part of this this sort of this sort of big you know, cloud diagram which we can <laughs> label Turkic? Yeah, I would I would put all of them in there. They they all had their role. I think very different kinds of roles. You know, the Huns and the Avars. I would put you know in different categories in terms of the historical impact. The, the Huns I thought were kind of um, ephemeral in, in a lot of ways, but um, they're all sort of. Uh, part of this uh, constant sort of um, diffusion of ideas and practices uh, from more or less Central Asia, from the steppe regions, uh, towards these great, very populous, settled societies in uh, the Middle East and Europe and China. So uh, uh, we are to understand then that I, I, I was kind of shocked to realize that of course, this makes sense that the Avars who end up in Eastern Europe are just a probably a very small portion of the yeah. overall Avar population that right. these some of these peoples uh, that wash up or in China are 
maybe 10% or some elites who got bored or something like that and decided <laughs> to move uh, and seek better plunder, supplies, grazing <laughs> land. Um, and there are a lot more back in Central Asia who never actually left. And that these are not necessarily, we think of them as these ephemeral massive waves crashing on the shore of the of China or uh, of Eastern Europe, Central Europe. But they're not ephemeral back in Central Asia. They're much longer lasting. Right. And and um, I, I think there's there's a couple things bound up with that. One is that, uh, right, in a short book, you have to monolithically use these tags, right? So here here's the Avars over here. People even draw a map, right? And they'll show you, oh, here's where they are. Uh, here's the here's the Xiongnu over here and so on. Um, and yet what's very clear from the the narratives that we have is fragmentary but these narratives and even from the way that we do human population genetics today these these were never monolithic populations the elites had a certain kind of identity that's usually the way we get the names of these people Um, but they had um, many kinds of cultural communities under them um, it's many of whom have nothing to do with Turkic anything. I mean, it's speaking some kind of Indo-European language or, or something, but have become part of this general uh, sort of development of um, mostly military conquests, but sometimes trade by which uh, these institutions from Central Asia are getting diffused to these more populous areas, either either by direct conquest, right, or um, in in a more indirect fashion. So that's one part of it. The second part of it, you know, you mentioned this ephemeral idea, is that um, yes, I mean, and I've I've even seen this in some contemporary writing today, where people say, well, you know, the thing about nomads is that um, they don't really change anything. They're the ones who get changed. Um, and I think part of this idea is that, yes, they do have very uh, thin populations in, in, in uh, comparison to the agricultural areas, um, just by the, the weight, right, of, of living and doing and trading and so on. I mean, they, they, can't, they can't have the overwhelming influence over these much larger populations many of them do tend to get sort of assimilated and and um, incorporated over time. But the the uh, function of these empires, there's nothing ephemeral about that. For instance, um, Eastern Europe, uh, particularly the Balkans, um, might have been Latin Catholic and not Byzantine Greek um, had it not been for the Bulgars. Um, the Islamicization of Central Asia uh, you, you just you can hardly see how that would have happened without these nomadic regimes. So their their impact on history is actually very very great. But I think sometimes what people are looking for is well nomads didn't turn other people into nomads, so therefore <laughs> it didn't look like they had too much uh, influence over them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's really the way to understand the the impact of these what I'm calling nomadic regimes, which are that's a shorthand. They're really post-nomadic regimes. They're, they are, they have a nomadic political tradition, but they are sort of um, integrating it with rule over these very populous agricultural uh, societies. Mm-hmm. Let's, well, let's talk about two uh, concepts that you refer to, the confessional state and the confessional age. Mm. Um, how, how is this, let's, how then do these quote-unquote nomadic uh, empires help to create these these conditions? Well, I think in several ways. This is, this is Marshall Hodgson's uh, phrase, and uh, he was using it to refer to states that are actually overtly confessional. Um, I'm trying to expand it to an age in which what appear to be, you know, uh, definitively confessional states are actually interacting with and transmitting influences to other states that that may not be so so obviously overtly um, confessional. So I think it, there's more or less this kind of confessional age, right? There's this idea where um, you know states and and uh, religious hierarchies are somehow merging. That that religion becomes a major kind of motivation, or at least a justification for 
long distance warfare, uh, you know, and the new hierarchies in society and so on and, 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 and so forth. So the role of nomads there, I think um, there's, there's various ways of looking at it. At one point, I kind of talk about the importance of mercenaries right in these in these systems i mean this is a, an age in which the scale of warfare is being uh raised very significantly you need to have uh skills um you need to have information about peripheral areas you might not be occupying mercenaries are very important there um i sort of link the turks coming in from the east into the islamic world to this more general idea of the Varangians in the in the Byzantine Empire or the Normans, right in the in the Latin Catholic um, um, uh, regimes, that um, this is an age in which uh, it may not be you don't think of the Normans as nomads, but they're moving sort of in the way that nomads move. Yeah, very, very, for, very for much. Very, <laughs> I do think of them as nomads. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, actually, I'd, I'd probably join you in that. But, um, you know, they're moving for the same reasons that the Turks are actually moving into to the Islamic world. So that, that's one of the ways. The second way is that um, uh, when we get to something like the Seljuks, um, the, the Turks are actually becoming the leaders of these um, uh, of these settled, very, very populous, and in fact, um, um, confessional uh, regimes. So they have to take on the role there of the of the protector, the champion of the of the uh, approved religion. So uh, it's quite a transformative period. Nomads are transforming things, and nomads are being transformed by these influences. So we think of some of these these uh, what we would say, I guess, early medieval, uh, high medieval, uh, both in Europe and oh. and you would argue in um, the rest of Eurasia. Um, the, some of these sultans of, of Turkic origin, that they're centralizers. But mm-hmm. as you point out, uh, only a few of them succeeded at that. And far more uh, evinced uh, what, m- what might be called, what you call liberality. Um, what in the world, uh, how? And uh, what, first of all, what do you mean by liberality? And, and how did they do that? I, I find it very actually very persuasive. It explains a lot about Baghdad in the in 800s and 900s and, mm. and so on. But um Explain what you mean by that liberality. Well, the liberality is mostly around the idea that um, these, I think partly because of the Central Asian influence, but then also probably just the political exigencies, right? That that, um, these uh, sultanic regimes uh, uh, tend in the direction of permitting greater and greater participation by uh, religious um, leaders who would otherwise be regarded as heterodox, um, who would have to be excluded, who would have to be maybe even persecuted for their ideas. Um, this, the Sufis are a very easy example of this, but but really even in, in with respect to the legal schools, right? The the um, the Turks uh, lean in the direction that the sultans they're leading leaning in the direction of uh, more liberal interpretations of religious scripture and of the law, and um, the effect I think is greater. Uh, diversity in um, uh, philosophy and in scientific thinking, um, and this is this is something that the Turks, I think, inherited from the Abbasids before them, who were not Turkic in any particular way, but were working with the same problem of how to uh, balance. Um, the uh, their relationship with a whole lot of different constituencies, some of which are religious and and and, s- and some of whom are sort of uh, culturally distinct. And so uh, the upshot, I think, is that um, not only greater um, influence from Sufism, but of course, along with Sufism, this sort of this later Central Asian, this Bukharan, this Transoxianan influence, um, that's that's part of Sufi history after a certain point, um, that this kind of, of thinking becomes more important in the Islamic world, I think ultimately has this sort of um, secondary impact on Europe in particular. Um, you, uh, as we said, you said at the very beginning, you had been meaning to write about the Mongols, um, uh, and you didn't. Um, and in fact, you say that uh, when you, we finally get to Genghis Khan, 
you say, yeah, he doesn't really merit the title of world conqueror. Uh, but the people are important are those who succeeded him. Um, and uh, so why doesn't he merit the title of world conqueror? And why are the Toluids who follow him much more important in your estimation? Uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, um, um, people who are specialists in Mongol history have been very uh, generous to me in a lot of ways. And on the basis of the book, they have they you know, recently invited me to be a keynote speaker at one of their um, uh, annual meetings. But the first thing they asked me was, you didn't mention Chinggis Khan. Um, and uh, that was true. I hadn't actually mentioned it very much. Um, this, I mean, it's just the history of it, right? I mean, Chinggis Khan, Genghis Khan, he didn't conquer the world. He didn't even conquer a whole lot of Eurasia. It wasn't his ambition. He had, uh, his regime was based on um, basically booty. Uh, I mean, he needed to uh, persuade these wealthy regimes around him to pay him tribute every year. And that was the initial scheme. And it was pretty successful until he started picking on these very weak regimes that simply fell down, right? So mm -hmm. this happened with Kara Kitai, this, this happened. Um, um, uh, so that um, by accident, more or less, I mean, I, I don't mean to say that you know, he was all surprised with his eyebrows raising up in the sky. But, I mean, gradually what happened, they moved into a whole new sort of thing. Now we're going to have to actually occupy this territory because we, we, more or less by accident, we destroyed the previous regime that was able to collect the taxes and give them to us. As, as So they had to create their own system for somehow or other we have to extract the wealth from this area and get it back to ourselves there at, at Karakoram. So I, I think Chinggis was remarkable in a lot of ways, but as, as a conqueror, it, it just doesn't seem to be what, what he was about. Now, what's more interesting about it is, as I said before, the way people tell history is history, is that under the Toluj regimes, and particularly the Ilkhans, you have the emergence of this great historiographical tradition in which they have to describe Chinggis as the world conqueror because that's the, that's their legacy. That's the source of their own legitimacy and charisma. So they have to start writing it up in this way. Um, and of course, they're under constant pressure from the from the Dragadaids, from the Jochids, who you know who are their rivals, who are constantly contesting their right to have this dominant position in the Mongol world. This narrative is really important. It has to be done right. And it turns out it was lasting, right? So people are constantly going back to Juvaini's description of the world conqueror and trying to describe Chinggis that way. It's just that if you look at the actual history of Chinggis, you're not going to find a lot of conquests. But to tell you, as you say, they were important. So who were they and why were they important? Well, they emerged we, uh, during the right after Chinggis dies. Um, his his uh, son uh, Ode uh, creates this this uh, dynasty, um, and uh, they're going to have an imperial center, a capital. They're going to have a bureaucracy. They have uh, transition, and um, uh, the um, the succession within that Chinggisid realm actually shifts to the Toluids. These are the sons of Tolui, Chinggis's youngest son, who never himself ruled anything. He died kind of young. But his sons are the famous sort of the Mongol rulers, so so uh, um, Kublai in China, right, and um, uh, Hulao in um, in in the creator of the Ilkhans. Um, it's the Toluids who, and they're very conscious about this, and it's the basis of this special relationship in the medieval period between China and Iran. Um, and Iraq, uh, and that results in this this remarkable transmission of all kinds of knowledge, medical, astronomical, mathematical, um, metallurgical, um, that um, later, again, has quite an impact on the stimulation of uh, technology and scientific thinking in Europe. So these are these, this, that's their that's their great long term significance. Um, but they're also then the the, they are influencing then the other the Turkic peoples that are around them, the Seljuks and then the Ottomans. Um, 
the 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 Ottomans. I mean, the, the Seljuks are mostly gone. But there's a little remnant. By that time, true, yeah. But they're they're mostly gone. But um, well, they're affecting them. I mean, in the case of the Yuan Empire in China, that this is Kublai's um, regime, they're mostly affecting the Turks by way of of contradistinction. Mm-hmm. That um, the the Jagadites, that basically has become a kind of Turkic regime, uh, the Georgians, which is heavily Turkic, even though it's sort of ruling over Russia, they're really feeling that they're opposed to the uh, ascendancy of of, of uh, Kublai, um, this opposition actually destroyed the Mongol Empire. There, there isn't any Mongol Empire after, basically, say twelve sixty five when when this um, this fighting concludes. Um, it that it ends that. I mean, so that the, the in a way the the Mongols in China are are defining the Chinggisid legacy almost in contradistinction to the Turkic regimes that also have uh, a strong Turkic legacy. Uh, And of course, the Ilkhans in Iran, they're calling themselves the Ilkhans, I think, because they see themselves as the subordinates to Kublai. They're seeing themselves as you know, the the adjunct empire to to the great Khan's empire in China. The um, last section of your book is entitled The Forge. Uh, having built up all the the sort of foundations, the whole, and then at that point you realize that the whole previous book has been foundation to get to this moment uh, and to show the way that all this has then leads to altering the nature of what we think of as the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give away all the things in The Forge. Um, <laughs> so let's just focus on one thing just to see how You've been building up the the the, the prequel uh, to what then happened. So let's talk about dissidence and doubt. Mm. Um, how has this all of this uh, led to dissidence and doubt? Say from the the, the 14th to the 17th centuries, because um, that's it's a heck of a claim. Um, thank you. It's actually I I was hoping people would would see that as sort of the main the avenue right through 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 the book um and and thanks for being protective of the you know all the i don't know what the denouement of the, of, of the story there <laughs> yeah. um but uh yeah the distance and doubt thing this this was really important to me um uh this this ability of Central Asia, because it, it has this kind of very, very porous um, political history over time. There's never been the ability um, in Central Asia to completely suppress the influence of ancient uh, religious ideology, um, particularly this dualism, the light and dark thing. And part of the dualism is this constant sort of this this doubt, this hesitation about what is real, uh, you know, things look this way to me, but is that really just the demiurge doing that? Is that the, is that Satan creating? You know what? So there there develops, and I think you see this in the Islamic world, tenth, uh, eleventh, twelfth centuries. This this sense of uh, where again there was this this constant influence from Transoxiana and Bukhara and you know Sufi influence and so on. That um, how are we going to affirm? that this world is real and this this um skepticism i think it it also has a kind of scriptural component and the development of the vernacular languages we should be able to read this in our own language so we can understand it for ourselves we we don't want priests and you know imams telling us all this stuff we want to be able to read this for ourselves test it against what uh, the established authorities are telling us that kind of ethos. I think is is uh, I felt that you can trace it from the inability to completely suppress the ancient uh, religious ideologies in Central Asia, the uh, growth of institutions, particularly through the um, uh, confessional age, for the transmission of religious ideas from especially this Transoxiana area to um, the Islamic world and then there further on to Europe afterwards. So this sense that um, we need vernacular languages to read this for ourselves. We need to have direct preaching by people 
who uh, have read this and have thought about it and are not necessarily representing the established authorities. Um, and then we need all along with that from the beginning, I mean, all, all the way back to Eden Sina, right? You have this sense that we combine this ideology with actual scientific application. So he does this early work in optics and, and um, you know, trying to understand uh, basic um, physics ideas about about force and 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 uh, mass and it, they have gone together all along and so and and I, I I thought that really some of the most interesting not not the exclusive manifestations most interesting all occurred in Eastern Europe at this at this kind of interface mm-hmm. between uh, the Islamic Central Asian world on the one hand and and the the Byzantine world um, on the other, and where you have the emerges the, the the early Moravians, you know the the um, the, the Czech uh, great sort of Czech dissident um, speakers, the Hussites, the Hussites, and and this is also where you know I end it not with um, a, a discussion of religion, but of uh, transformation of modern societies for scientific education and and so on. It comes to, there's a direct line of transmission in that particular case, but I'm sure that that's not the only. You know, you can do this right in a variety of localities and looking at the transmission of these these things traveling together. These this scientific inquiry and skepticism about. Um, the perceived world, right? Yeah. And th- this really persists all the way up to Newton. So the anodyne sort of history of STEM, let's call it that, that you get to in, a, in, a, in a high school calculus book is that, you know, these things, there's like the Indian numbers and they come to Arabic numbers and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but what you're describing is the um, the replication of cultures of inquiry and, of yes. cult- and, and even more important, cultures of argument. Uh, and that they manage to sort of then replicate themselves across what should be cultural guardrails, but instead someone sees, oh, I like that, and I want to do that too, and then they do that, and it keeps on moving out, you know, to the east and also to the west from, and uh, we should probably also say, where is the Transoxiana, for those who don't have the ability to look at the little maps? um, it's kind of modern day Uzbekistan, um, not not exactly, but you can think of that more or less. Um, it's this this it's the, the center of it are these great cities Bukhara, uh, Samarkand. Um, it's it was connected from this very the very earliest um, development of what we call the Silk Road, um, hooked right to them from northern India, and they remained central to every kind of uh, transmission and transformation across Central Asia uh, all through the early modern period. Well, um, let's, we're going to have to close out now because we're, we're over yep. time. But um, I, I just, you, this book has been out for a year, I think, more or less. Uh, that means that you've probably been a couple of years since you stopped editing it. Um, have you changed yeah. your mind about anything in it? Um. There are things that I regret. Um, <laughs> one is one is that I mean there just isn't enough in the book about India. That's that's for sure, and that's partly uh, chronological. My my narrative breaks off before the before the Mughals actually you know reach their peak. But um, it was also just uh, India and also Southeast Asia. I just. There was just so much, only so much I could get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, in terms of the basic ideas, which I, you know, you have you have really pinned them down very well. Um, no, I probably just feel more strongly about it, and I I keep uh, actually making notes that 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 only kind of elaborate the argument. If I if I could have kept the book at the original scope, which was twice as big as this one, I, I probably could. I'd, maybe I'd have fewer regrets now. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, um, no, I don't think I have changed my mind about the the big ideas in the book. Yeah, a um, one of my favorite novelists, the late Charles McCary, who wrote spy novels, but said he said because he had been in the CIA, uh, he said if he had been an insurance adjuster, he'd write novels about insurance. Um, <laughs> But he uh, said, I write, I don't write books for anybody other than me because I have to work some ideas out. He was going to work some ideas yeah. out. So you certainly mm-hmm. had a lot of things in your head that you had to work out. 
Um, but you know, sometimes we think that we're also going to write books for other people. Um, do did you intend for this book to sort of change the way that people teach world history? Or were you also trying to establish some sort of lines of inquiry for future research or both? Um, I Well, I think, you know, these lines of what, what are the real sources of, of uh, skepticism and uh, independent inquiry and so on. I mean, I think that that is something that people should probably try to look at a little bit more. But I, I think in terms, if you're talking about world history, um, I I. Th- I think that we have this kind of nascent sense of of Eurasia. It still sounds to many world historians kind of parochial to say, "Oh well, Eurasia, you know, you what?" But but um, I do think to the extent we can be more explicit about Eurasian phenomena, we actually understand better places like sub-Saharan Africa, Australia, the Americas. I'm really struck by the fact, you know, when people give you, they'll say, here's a global history textbook. And um, it, it really, it is basically Eurasian history without saying it's Eurasian history. Mm-hmm. There's good I, I, reason to look at Eurasia. That's where the concentration of population was. That's that's where the wealth was and so on. But um, I think being more explicit about that would be helpful to the way that we conceptualize global um, and world history. Yeah, I, I'm always worried that world history can become just what most history textbooks are, which is just you know one damn thing after another, just another collection of facts. Well, uh, I guess that's that's another you know that's another side to it. I I found that the people doing global history and 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 world history before that, the concentration was on this kind of contact, right? Contact and, and exchange. Um, and it's, you know, it's superficial, right? It's all sort of on the, on the surface. And I really thought not everything can be explained as just, as you say, one damn thing happening after another, but one damn thing getting exchanged after another, um, <laughs> that somehow or other this is, oh yeah, that's the way you, you did that, that beneath that, right? There are, organic changes in popular cultures and economies that have affected many of these societies at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that these people doing comparative history of, let's say, China and Europe, that's very important. I want people to do that. But China and Europe are not actually separate places. They're, They're actually places within a larger place, Eurasia, that have been affected by similar fundamental changes that have made them similar in various ways. It's not always this kind of of uh, contact and exchange uh, story. My guest today has been Pamela Crossley. She's the author of Hammer and Anvil, Nomad Rulers at the Forge of the Modern World. Pamela Crossley, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 